Sacks waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. What is up? You know, <laughs> we get going. We get out of ball. We get rolling. Matthew Barry's on the program. Uh, big shout out and thanks to uh, Bill Hoffheimer from uh, ESPN PR for helping set that up. We get on a roll. We had done two shows in a row. And uh, I went down. I went down for the count. I was in the hospital with a bowel blockage. And one last thing is going to be all about that. I'm going to tell the whole story. Uh, I, I think I've said before, I want one last thing to be to be a bit more personal, to be more real, to be more from the heart. And I actually got a few compliments on the uh, one last thing that appeared at the end of the last episode. So we'll talk all about that then. This is Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters. This is season eight. I think it's episode 13, maybe even 14. And we have a good show for you today. We're going to talk about the World Series that starts tonight. I'm going to get this up a couple hours ahead of the World Series starting. Uh, It's the Los Angeles Dodgers versus the Boston Red Sox. They haven't played a World Series since the late 1900s. So I wanted to do something, and this is what we're going to do. Jeff Passan, who was the very first guest uh, in the history of this program, we'll be on in a minute, and we break down the World Series with Jeff Passan. We talk about it from both sides. We'll take a break, then we'll update the book club, which has me really busy. Uh, I have a stack of books. I'm reading every free minute I have. Uh, so we have a big book club update, and then we're going to talk to Damon Hack from the Golf Channel, who is a lifelong Dodgers fan. And we're going to talk about this Dodgers team and talk about growing up in Los Angeles as a Dodgers fan. We talk about Vin Scully and Chavez Ravine, Dodgers Stadium. We talk about it all and we get his perspective on this year's Dodgers team. So it's kind of a fun show. I wanted to have someone from the media who's a big Red Sox fan. uh, But it seems like those guys are either stratosphere guys or I just couldn't find one and didn't have time and once Jeff was a go anyway, I knew I wanted to probably do two guests. So that's what we'll do. We'll talk to uh, to Jeff in a second. Like I said, a big book club update, books to give away, books I'm reading, books I've read, interviews coming up. Uh, then we'll talk to Damon Hack. We even get a few questions in about Tiger Woods and uh, Phil Mickelson doing a pay-per-view. Like they're Vince McMahon. And then one last thing, and I'll tell the whole story about being in the hospital. Uh, real quick, again, it's sportscasters.com, or excuse me, it's soundcloud.com slash sports underscore casters, or dash casters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. 
Uh, just wanted to mention that real quick. Talk to uh, Matt Sabalski, the host of Motivation Through Music podcast next week. We could have some new episodes of that up soon as well. Uh, so if you enjoyed the Motivation Through Music podcast, you could see some more of that in the future. But I got a lot I want to do in this episode, so I'm not going to fart around here too much. Like I said, I laid it all out, and I want to get to one last uh, one last thing as well. Um, so I don't know, a lot of people maybe don't listen to that this uh, every week. This would be the week to listen to it, as I kind of really just kind of telling the story of what I've been through the last few weeks and how it's affected me physically and really emotionally this time more than ever. Um, uh, and I'll tell you the Paula side of this, which is complicated in a way that it's never really been before. Uh, so we'll get into that. I'll do that as best as I can. Give everyone a picture of what has gone on. So with that in mind, first, let's do the World Series and let's do it well. And let's start with our friend Jeff Passan, the first ever guest to appear on this show uh, from Yahoo Sports. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Jeff Passan. All right, our next guest needs little introduction on this program. He was the first guest to ever appear way back in January of 2011, and he's been on several, several times since to talk baseball and other things. He covers the game beautifully for Yahoo Sports, and he's taking some time out while he's in Boston covering the World Series. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? How you doing, buddy? Doing great. How are you, Steve? We finally tracked each other down. Jeff and I have probably made tentative podcast plans seven times this baseball season. And for one reason or another, usually me, uh, we have not, probably all of them me, we have not uh, been able to hook up. So it's good to finally uh, get you back on the line. What's up, buddy? That's life, man. That's the way it works. We always always get together by the end. And and the end is usually playoff time. We we're, we're always good for at least one playoff podcast a year. Yeah. And the thing is, I the thing is, I feel like, I am I in second place on all time appearances. Yeah, you're. Yeah, I mean, you're way up there. And and now that Lee Jenkins is in the world of the exactly. Uh, yeah. You exactly. Could, now that now that Jenkins is a black box, I mm. feel like I can I can be Steve Martin. <laughs> exactly you can move up those and and there's i always wonder like who's the I, mean, I don't know exactly who the steve martin was like was it i mean pearl jam was on a lot Foo fighters were on a lot i guess it changes because bands come and go like that but i always wondered like who the musical version of the steve martin of this show is i mean that spot is unclaimed if you want to just say you're that anyway uh, how i mean how how many how many episodes are we at now so it started in 2011. I think it's close to 300 episodes. Yeah, I feel like you need to go back. I mean, it's not like you spend enough time doing this already. I almost feel like you need to go back and just listen to the snippets at the beginning of the show just to figure that out and get like a database going. Yeah, I actually had a really good running database like around season five. that had everything, what episodes, accurate count. And then, like anything else, you know, you fall off. If you miss it one week, you miss it two weeks. Then it's you know, yeah. two two years later. You then, you had, then, you, then you had a then you had a kid. Yeah, then you have a kid exactly, <laughs> and she could give a shit about it. So it's not like we're spending time. 
together like Doc McStuffins. Uh, hey, instead of Doc McStuffins today, let's count up podcast listeners. She's like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out on that. I'm going to go tear up the bathroom. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we missed our all-star break-ish one. That, I think that's usually our pattern. We get it in around the all-star break and get it around playoffs, and I think all-star break's kind of the one we missed. Here's the thing. I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that we missed that one, to be honest, because you always ask me for predictions, and I'm always wrong. <laughs> and we like, never if you talk- had me out at the all-star break this year, I would have said the Red Sox are playing over their heads. You know, the Astros are the best team in, the, in, in baseball. The Nationals are going to be fine. Like I, I would have just, I would have just bundled it absolutely, completely, horribly, and so I've, I've kept myself from doing that for at least another year at this point. Though, it, you know, there's always, uh, there's always the World Series pick at the end of the show, which I'm probably going to mangle as well. I can't figure out the Nationals. Still, I watch a lot of Annalise baseball, been kind of a Braves fan. Just because in Buffalo they were like one of the only teams I could watch. Believe it or not, I could watch more Braves games than Yankees, Mets, Indians. Growing up, it was pretty much Yankees or uh, Braves or Cubs mostly. So I watched a lot of Braves growing up. It was a good time to watch them, I guess. So I watch them enough, but I can't explain the Nationals. I don't know why they. I don't know what happened there. Uh so you probably house was not good. Uh, yeah. I mean, because. Let's put it this way. The clubhouse situation with the Nationals was so bad that a relief pitcher got traded because the general manager thought he had talked with me. Like, if that doesn't paint paint some minor portrait of dysfunction, I'm not sure exactly what does, particularly considering the fact that I literally never had spoken with the guy in uh, over the course of either of us being around baseball. It was pretty funny actually. The Cubs so the Cubs lose in uh in the wild card game. And I'm in their clubhouse afterward, you know, talk to John Lester, listen to Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant. Uh I'm over, I think it was by Wilson Contreras's locker. And I feel a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around and it's Brandon Kinsler. And for those who don't know the story, I had written something about, I think it was July 30th, as the Nationals were trying to figure out what to do. I had written something on it being just a dysfunctional clubhouse where there were a lot of questions about Davey Martinez's leadership and uh, how that had contributed to problems inside the organization that year. And Brandon Kinsler... Uh, a, a relief pitcher ended up getting traded to the Cubs and Mike Rizzo, the general manager told him he got traded because he Rizzo was convinced that Kinsler was the main source for the story that I had written. And I had never spoken with Brandon Kinsler in our lives. I had never texted him. I had never communicated with him in any way. This is not like me trying to, like parse the English language. This is just the, I, I, I want to say unequivocally, I had never been in touch with him at all. And, and so, so I feel a tap on my shoulder in the clubhouse after the Cubs lose. And I turn around and, and it's Kinsler. And he says, Hey, are you that dude from Yahoo? And we proceeded <laughs> to have like a wonderful 10 minute conversation and, and just sort of laugh about the whole episode. But uh, if, if you want to know something about the Nationals 2018 season in a nutshell, 
uh, a, a relief pitcher they signed to a two-year deal this offseason uh, was gone because of a conversation he never had. It's kind of like your Mike and the Mad Dog Piazza moment. I feel like if we're still doing this show in 10 years, you're going to be like, I brought the Cubs, Kinsler! <laughs> that was me! That was Jeff Fasson's work! It's like, uh, like uh, it, 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 you know, it didn't really, uh, it didn't really do them much good. He didn't pitch particularly well there, actually. But they'll be back next year. Good old player option. Yeah, and hey, not everyone's Piazza. You know what I mean? So I mean, what, what are you gonna do? But yeah, it's, it's your Mike and the Mad Dog, uh, Mike and the Mad Dog moment. So we all know those guys single-handedly brought Mike Piazza to the Mets. So, uh. Look at we missed. I saw, I saw I saw Chris Russo yesterday. Actually, he's, Chris Russo, he's still great. He's for, still for great the, for the character for the for the character yep. that he plays. Like Chris Russo is a wonderful person. Seriously, <laughs> I don't think I don't think people. He is such a nice guy. He really is. I love and, to hear uh, that. Yeah, I, I I don't know Mike Francesa at all, but Chris Russo is uh, a plus guy. His um. His uh, rant, like I think it was last week about the, the game times. I mean, just too good, just too good. When you get, I him, didn't hear it. But oh, I'm it's sure, so but funny. I'm sure he's right. Oh, he got going on the game about the one game ending at two thirty in the morning, and I yeah. mean, he just let off. It's two thirty in the morning. <laughs> Tiger Tiger Woods isn't putting in eighteen at the Masters at two thirty in the morning. You know, like he was just. He was. <laughs> you do a pretty. You do a pretty good dog. That's eh, not bad. Eh, eh, not awful, but you know, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, you, uh, in New York, I'm from New York, so I got I got a little bit of a uh, little bit of an edge, maybe. But oh man, he was wound up. It was a good. You got to find Hold that on. one. Did you just say? Did you just? Did you just say you're from New York? Yeah, I'm from New York. I'm from the state of New York. Where in New York? I'm from Buffalo, New York. It's 500 miles from the city. That is not New York. What? That is not New York. Buffalo is not New York. Buffalo is like a Buffalo is like a territory that New York annexed from Canada. <laughs> Buffalonians should not call themselves. I'm sorry. You're a Western New York. Oh, that's. Oh, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. That that's fine. I'm just yeah. saying. When someone says, like, when when you have like a New York City accent. And someone from Buffalo comes in and says, "I'm from New York." It's like you're. It's like you're trying to fool people there. You're not from New York, man. You're from Buffalo. I Big know. difference. Well, it's like it's like Pittsburgh and Philly, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're from one I mean, side of the state or the other, right? We're just from the other side of the state, but we're both from New York. Uh, you're a New York resident. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Look, we're, you're not going to get a huge argument from anyone from Buffalo to distance themselves from being part of New York City. Believe me. So, right. Exactly. Right, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not. I'm not definitely not trying to insert myself on that side of the article. I'm just uh, maybe saying it. Maybe aids in my mediocre Chris Russo um, uh, impression to be of the same region. How about that state region? I don't know. Whatever. This is why we never talk baseball. Time, time zone? <laughs> time zone, yes. It is the same time zone. Look, I can get there. I can get there in less than an hour on a flight. So that's got to mean something. I think it's like a 38-minute no. flight. No. No? No. That no. still doesn't mean something. 
All right. My brother lived there for 18 months? Nope. Nope. Still nothing? Nope. You're trying, man. I appreciate the effort. Not happening. Believe me, I'm fine with it. We 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 crave our our uh, our Western New York status here. We we love being. We this is a, one of the rare times you'll ever get me trying to distance myself closer to New York City than further apart. <laughs> <laughs> very very rare. To th- that's like one of the great feats you've actually pulled off on this podcast because I would have probably said it was impossible. But anyway, this is why we never talk baseball on this show. We get down these we get down these rabbit holes. Look at last year, speaking of New York, I was into the idea of New York and LA being a World Series just because as someone when you don't have a dog in the fight, you're kinda of just looking for something cool and that felt cool to me. Although uh Ben Ryder, who's a friend of the podcast, his whole thing was cool to me too, so it was not that big of a deal to kind of keep following that. SI cover story thing because Ben had been on the show the week that came out even. So that's kind of a cool thing. Um, but I was, I'm happy this year. It's, it's Dodgers, Red Sox. There's just something really cool about that to me. Uh, maybe it fits in with just the, just baseball more than any other sport. Just kind of like the romance of it. The, the Fenway park, you know, Dodgers stadium, you know, uh, Boston, LA, uh, come late, leave early versus pink hats. You know the changes of the air. I don't. There's just something, something about this matchup. Before I even look at the players on the field, just kind of appeals to me for whatever reason. You? Yeah, it's it's two historic franchises. Uh, one of which has won three World Series over the previous 14 years. The other of which hasn't won since. Kirk Gibson limped around the bases. And so to have these two teams facing off against one another is, to me, one of the best matchups you could ask for. I wonder how America feels about it. I wonder how the 3,000-plus miles between the two cities looks at a game like this. Because there's almost like... uh, like this exceedingly vocal segment of fans that is raging against the machine here and feels like these are two teams with payrolls close to, and and in the Red Sox case, well above $200 million. And what does it say about baseball that these are the final two? Now that looks past the, the fact that the Milwaukee Brewers we're one game away from being in the World Series with an exceedingly low payroll, and that the Oakland A's, who have the lowest in baseball, were in the playoffs this year, and that the Tampa Bay Rays, who have, I believe, the second lowest in baseball, or if not the second lowest, they're certainly bottom five, won 90 games, and if they weren't in the American League East, right. probably would have made the playoffs themselves. So... I'm I'm not going to sit here and say that Major League Baseball has has struck a perfect amount of competitive balance. It has unequivocally not. But the notion that dollars buy championships, I think, is is patently false and and not supported by any facts. When you look at the amount of money that the New York Yankees have spent over the past ten seasons. And the fact that they're they're championshipless. 
Right? Isn't it more that money buys mistakes? You can make more mistakes that they don't. It... Yeah, it, it, that that is that is absolutely true. But I think so many teams out there right now are 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 so wonderfully process oriented that they've done about as good of a job as you can of of trying to minimize those mistakes. And and it's almost gone too far. I think that was a you know the free agent market last season or the lack of a free agent market last off season was a function of that. And it's it's going to be really interesting to see what this winter holds. Uh already Eduardo Escobar resigned with the Arizona Diamondbacks 3 years 21 million dollars uh for a guy who's a theoretical three-win player that and and was going to be primed to hit free agency at 29 years old uh, in a week and a half. That was, to some at least, a, a pretty low number. On the other hand, getting three years guaranteed is not something that players of his ilk tend to get. So uh, I, I'd have been curious to see if he had gone out onto the market where he would have landed and if this is a, a precursor to another slow or at least uh, financially minimized market beyond Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Right. Those are the guys we got to kind of see set the pace, right? Or are they just so far out there that they almost they're, don't even matter? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, you know, they're different. Right. I think that, the, the Patrick Corbins of the world and AJ Pollock and Nathan Uvalde and, uh, and, and there are some others. I'm curious to see what Michael Brantley gets or if, uh, if he even gets a qualifying offer, whether he'll consider taking it. I mean, there, there are a lot of guys out there this winter to be had. It's a, it's a pretty good, even beyond the top two, it's a pretty good free agent class. We were talking about – let's go step back a second. We were talking about the middle of the country and what they think about this series. And it just got me wondering, like, do you think going into a series – like, going into a season, what do you do? You have any idea – it's probably an, a question you almost can't answer. But what is, like, the ideal World Series? Like, what is the – how do you draw it up? Like, what – do you think if you if you took a poll to a man at MLB – you took a poll to a man at Fox, and you took a poll to a man on the street. Like, what do you think you come up with? Is there an answer to that, or or not really? I think on the street, it just depends what street you're on. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I I don't know if there's that marquee matchup that that people would embrace, like maybe Cubs Patriots. Okay, because I was thinking I, and in my I say head. Packers Patriots because I say Packers Patriots because the Brady QBs. versus Rogers, right? right? Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. Does baseball have one of those? I mean, is it is it Yankees Dodgers? Is it Cubs Yankees? Is it Cubs Red Sox? Is it a Cubs White Sox? Is it Yankees Mets? Is it Dodgers Angels? Is it is it Giants someone else? Is it Indians? You know, versus anyone. I mean, there there are so many different permutations of great World Series, but I don't know if there's an unequivocally greatest. 
Well, I think the one there was that they would, you know, there's a famous Sports Illustrated, the Five Outs Away article. I think Verducci wrote it, right? I mean, that's the one that they just didn't quite get it, is that Cubs-Red Sox when both of them still had right. the, the streak going. I think that was the one, that if they could have right. got that one, that would have been the ultimate. Those two teams and those two markets with all that history. Yeah, I mean, does it, that... And that that still has some cachet, I think, right? Yeah, oh yeah, just not not. I don't think it has what it would have had in two thousand three. If that oh, was the World nah, Series, yeah, that might have been close. the biggest one ever. Yeah, I mean that might have been. And if they could have got seven games out of that, I, I mean, don't. Oh my God. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if there's an answer to that anymore. Yeah. I I don't. I I honestly don't know if there's like an incredible World Series that hasn't been played. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, that's why I, I kind of preface it saying there might not be an answer because I think we're figuring that out as we're kind of talking it through. And I think like what you said with the Super Bowl, the, the NFL always gets to kind of restock that answer based on who the QBs are, right? Because we were really close last right. year. We were probably one fluke play last year against probably getting Breeze and Brady. And that's a perfect Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, I mean, right, right now, so you, you can always recycle those I mean, names. I mean, is it is it about to become Mahomes Golf? I was just thinking that in my head. Yeah, like they're already restocked for the next for when when Brady and Breeze and I guess Manning's already gone and Rogers when that era yeah. clears out. Now you you kind of already seeing the 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 repopulation of of those names in Golf and. And Goff and, Goff and McVay will, I think, be the the team, you know, the the tandem, and then you have uh, Mahomes will be the freak, right? Like just the 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 guy right. with the skills that just I'm sure your son grew growing up in the perfect at the perfect time in the perfect city to just fall in love with a guy like Mahomes. I would think, you know. Yeah, and you feel and and, and the good you feel good getting a Mahomes jersey right now too because oh. you know he's not going anywhere. Nope. You got you got that that no, solid no, five my, years. My my kid this 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 is how you know that my my older kid is my son. Because Mahomes is is being Mahomes, doing ridiculous things. And and he and he looks at me and he says, Dad, do you think Mahomes is gonna be the next R G three? I'm like, good God, you cynical <laughs> bastard! Oh no! What, <laughs> what the? Heck? What did I pass along to you? I'm sorry, child. Gosh. Yeah. That, oh, for RG three. I still think of that that knee injury. <laughs> I just you say his name, and I just see his knee buckling in that game, and just thinking like, why are you, why are you even out there? What are you even doing out there on that field in those conditions? Yeah. I talked to Malcolm Kelly about that. Um, on this show, it's kind of cool. Malcolm Kelly, I wanted to have him on really bad because he did this really cool freestyle rap when he was at OU. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's awesome. They had just won. They just won the Big Twelve against uh, Nebraska Cornhuskers, and um, Malcolm Kelly does the coolest freestyle rap. Hold on. What was what was that? That's how he said it. I kind of said it in his dialect. The Nebraska Cornhuskers. Yeah, Huskers, that, that yeah. didn't work. Yeah, because you haven't heard it. Okay. Okay. But um, anyway, so I wanted so he's always been fascinating to me, and I talked to him about because he had similar knee issues and had a knee injury on that field. And again, we're in the weeds, but he was really quick to blame the Washington organization and the medical staff for all of his 
and RG3's problems more than the field. I just thought that was just an interesting moment in sportscasters history that probably no one cares about. But man, very cynical of your son. I hope that I hope that Patrick Mahomes is not the next RG3 because he is very fun to watch and yeah, very very close to being a saint. If uh, if he's there, the next pick, Patrick Mahomes is a saint, not Lattimore. But believe me, I uh, I fist pumped when the Saints drafted Lattimore, and I should have backflipped. So. Anyway, yeah, I was going to say that, that that's a that's a pretty good uh, <laughs> right. fallback plan. And it's not like it's not like we are the team that made the like I made a choice. You know, he went he went right. he was gone, and we we got we got the next guy on our board. So, um, admittedly, they could they could have traded for that tenth pick. Yeah, they could have moved up and got him, but also you're balancing still having Drew Brees, and you know, as it turned out, adding Lattimore put them plays within a Super Bowl. You know, where yeah, adding, Mahomes, adding Mahomes, they're not anywhere near that because, as you could see, the reason they didn't make the Super Bowl is because the secondary is still quite not there. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and a fluke. I mean, it's a fluke. It's a fluke. I don't, I mean, I'm going to have to watch it a hundred times this week, um, of course, because they play the Vikings. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. You're not, you're not, you're not bitter. No. No. I mean, having lost three playoff games with names. Uh, since 2010 is awesome. I mean, anytime you lose a playoff game and then they name it, you know it was an awesome day. So we've lost the Beastquake game, we've lost the Catch 3, and whatever the hell they called the one last year. Minnesota or Minneapolis, I don't know what they decided on. Miracle. So, awesome. Anyway, baseball, World Series, that's what we're talking about, right, Jeff? Sure. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Clayton Kershaw is a too simple... You know, this is almost like a quarterback question. Is it too simple to say the Dodgers will win or lose this World Series if they can get two and a half ish good outings out of Clayton Kershaw? Like that's their only my, path. My to colleague, my, my colleague Tim Brown on the Yahoo Sports MLB podcast. You can download for your uh, listening pleasure after you finish with this yesterday said he thinks that whoever wins the Kershaw sale matchup is going to win the World Series. And and certainly that's a simplification of it, but when when you look at when they're pitching, they're going to be pitching game one. If the Dodgers can come into Fenway Park and steal home field advantage, uh, that's a pretty great scenario for them. They're pitching game five. Uh, if the series is tied two to two, then all of a sudden the team that wins game five is in the catbird seat. Or if it's three to one, that's a potential clinching game. So, yeah, I think in, in this series, the fact that the number one starters are starting the series and that they didn't get worn down from the previous series uh, is, is a, is one of those signs that that's going to become abundantly clear. And yet, I hedge only because I know how bullpenish baseball is in 2018. Right. And if I'm not going to say at the first sign of trouble, Dave Roberts is going to pull Clayton Kershaw or Alex Cora is going to pull Chris Sale. But they're far likelier to have quick hooks these days than they would be April through September. I can't believe how quick the hooks come sometimes, and and I understand 
the era too, you know, and still sometimes you just, you can't believe it. So I wouldn't be surprised either. The other thing I'm really curious about is who's going to have a harder time. What manager has a harder time in the other park? Is it the Red Sox trying to piece their lineup together, making a bets, playing second base, maybe choice, or is it the yeah, Red Sox, I mean, so- Dodgers? It, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the Dodgers get to put Matt Kemp in there. That's not a that's not a bad alternative. The Red Sox, on the other hand, are going to downgrade themselves at two positions defensively in order to get J.D. Martinez's bat in the lineup. J.D. Martinez is going to play right field. Mookie Betts is going to shift over to second base, the position he played in the minor leagues, but uh, at which he has played all of six games, I believe, in the last four years. And it's, you know, it is a risk by Alex Cora, but they believe that they need J.D. Martinez's bat in the lineup. And you know what? I get it. I totally understand. And it's, you know, it's it's not ideal by any means for the Red Sox, particularly when uh, you're going to be facing... Uh, a left-hander in probably two of those games. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, you're going to get Steve Pierce over at first base, which is nice because at least you can have one plus defender on the right side of the infield. But at the same time, any, any time where you have a guy turning two, it's dangerous. And if you have a guy turning two, in Mookie Betts, who's not used to turning to, you wonder how awry that might go. And then he's also not making like these badass catches where he's taking home runs away either. Like he did that twice in like yeah, forty eight exactly. hours. So, exactly. Yeah. I mean you're you're downgrading to a guy in JD Martinez who probably not got paid those only hundred ten million dollars yeah. he got paid only hundred ten million dollars this winter and I say only with a, a big smile on my face. He got paid only hundred ten million dollars this winter. Because there was fear over how bad he was in the outfield. Yeah, he's probably not going to bring any back. Like, like we're probably not going to. The big story of like Game Three probably isn't going to be whether or not a fan took JD Martinez's glove off while he was robbing a home run or whatever. I don't think we're going to get to that. I actually, I actually hope it is because that would be, that would be great. <laughs> Look, I'm all. I won't lie. I'm always looking for the best story to write. It's a great story right there. All right, well, if that happens, I demand to be mentioned in the article that that I, you know, created it somehow. That you call, yeah, that will definitely not happen. But I appreciate the effort. <laughs> uh, what are you curious about? Like those, that, those are kind of like jump off my head. Like, wow, what are the? How are the Red Sox going to change this lineup? Like, what when you break this down? Like, what's interesting to you? I'm curious who's going to be the Red Sox bullpen bridge. Are they going to use Rick Porcello or Nate Uvaldi? And if so, how does that affect them for games three and four? Uh, I'm curious how the uh, the Red Sox are going to match up against the the surfeit of lefties that the Dodgers have. Whether it's Kershaw uh, in game one, Ryu in game two, Rich Hill in game four, Caleb Ferguson, Scott Alexander, Julio Urias out of the bullpen. I mean. That's six lefties right there. And the Red Sox were a middle-of-the-pack team hitting left-handers this year. So I think that's going to be a a storyline to watch. And can the Dodgers uh, score runs without hitting home runs? Can they manufacture runs against uh, 
just such a solid Red Sox team. Like that's, I, you know, I don't think they're historically great. And, and I think even if they do win the World Series this year, they're not going to be looked back upon outside of Boston as historically great because they've just outplayed their own expectations enough so that, you know, they, they won 108 games. And that's hard to do. But that is really a difficult thing for them to do. So, uh, you know, can Boston be that 108-win team like they were during the division series when the Yankees stole home field and they marched into Yankee Stadium and promptly swept them out of there? Or, or the Astros, who won game one, and, and the Red Sox salvaged the split at home and went down to Houston and won three consecutive games. It's a team that's 5-0 and in the postseason on the road, which is just absurd. Do you buy the Craig Kimbrell was tipping pitches and now he knows and everything's all good narrative? Or you think that I buy that he I, I buy I buy that he was tipping pitches. Uh, I do not know whether he's all good, and I will I will not make judge you know pass judgment on that quite yet. That being said, uh, he did look a lot better, and sometimes all it takes is just a little tweak. Yeah, I love I, I love Kimbrell like. One of my, you know, you talk about bitter. Thinking about him standing in the bullpen at Dodger Stadium, in the eighth inning, with all ready to go, with the ball in his glove and his hands on his hip, trying to figure out why he's not in that game. As I think it was, or Uribe hit the home run, ended up, and in the 2013 Braves. That's an annoying one for me. And I know he's been through a lot with his daughter. So I mean, he's a guy I root for, just as a guy. So I hope, I hope he's got it figured out. But we'll find out, right? I mean, he's gonna be in a big spot and it probably won't be long for it to happen. I'd assume. And so it'll be interesting that to see. Correct. Yeah. I think, I think early on in the series, he's going to pitch only one inning, but I think Alex score showed a willingness to go to him for multiple innings. And if the Red Sox have a chance to, to clinch the world series, you're going to see Craig Kimbrell in the eighth. You know, I think there's something to be said for, I don't know if this is going to come off right, like a battle tested save. Like, you know, sometimes maybe re- like Rivera, he had it too easy. You know, you go through the whole year, you know. And get yeah, I don't. I'm just going to I'm just going to cut. I'm just going to cut you off. I don't buy it. You don't buy it. You know, I, I don't No, I don't buy that. That sucking enough to su- to to characterize it as sucked, but not enough to lose a game is, is a good thing. OK, it's not Fair a enough. good thing. Fair scary. Enough. It's scary as hell. Oh, I, I can imagine being a Red Sox fan when uh, when when that kid's diving for that ball, and you know, I mean, if he catches it, we win. If he misses it, it's a walk off here. I mean, that's a. It was yeah, that was a yeah. I mean, I wondered like, if, how does the course of the series change if Andrew Benintendi doesn't doesn't dive and catch that ball? And how many do you think he the gets series? there? That's like a six out of tenner, no? I mean, that's not that was not an easy catch. I don't think. I think six out. Of, I think six out of ten is is a stretch. I, yeah. I don't think it's that high. Okay, yeah. Wow, what a play. What a play. Almost underrated because, yeah, if it's less than 6 out of 10, that's an underrated play that he made that play because if he misses it, it's all yeah, it was, over it, to the wall. It, it, was a, it, was a pre, it was a pretty awesome play. Yeah. Well, Jeff Passan writes about baseball for Yahoo, and he also does a podcast on there now. Not as good as this one, but pretty good. They're learning. Um. A podcast on Yahoo as well, where you can uh, 
can listen to his voice with his friends. They get some good interviews, which is pretty cool. All right, your dreaded moment. What do you got? How many games? Who's going to win it and why? Red Sox in six. Zero confidence whatsoever in the pick. Uh, I've just seen them play, and this may be my own recency bias, but uh, they, they've just got the look, man. And beyond, of course, it's not about the look. Beyond the look, it's a deep lineup and, and a starting rotation uh, that has, has exceeded expectations and a bullpen that's that's gone well beyond uh, what even the Red Sox themselves imagined. And and when you combine all of those things, I think it's going to be a close series, but I think in the end the Red Sox are just the better team. Who's your MVP pick? MVP pick. Uh, let's go Mookie Betts. Going to win it during the regular season. Why not the postseason? I got my fingers crossed that that guy comes back from Chevy. If he's still alive, that like that Chris Farley guy, you remember him from the last, I think it was the Red Sox. I would love, the, the, the Chevy guy needs to be part of every celebration. Not every yeah. World Series celebration. He needs to go to birthday parties. He needs to go to like corporate events and just be professionally uncomfortable. Just the look on his face going to get the keys and knowing it's 50-50, he pulls the keys out and 50-50, he pulls the eight ball out. Was like the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> like Come he, on. he went to that pocket. Oh, he was, it was 50 50 no. at best that he got the cutie, got oh, the keys. Oh, no. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> he was just nervous. Come on. Would I'm you not. be nervous too if you were going on TV for the first time? I would be nervous. I would be. Especially if I was a Chevy executive that I knew everyone's going to be like, Chris Farley's alive. You know, the second they saw me. So I I love that guy. I love him too. I I literally thought about him since then and said I hope he's alive. Like I hope he's healthy and doing well and you know like I've thought he has crossed Tell my me. mind in the last five years. Reach out to him. Yeah, he'd get back to you. He'd probably be, he'd probably love to do a do a nice you know twenty minute spot on this show. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Send him the pitch. You know we've had Jeff Passan on the promote, show. Peter promote King. the brand. Matthew Barry, you know, we've had these guys. You know, what about you? Matt Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses was on. Why not? Chevy guy. So, he's probably got to get a lot of permission to be in public now, though. Like, I... I don't know. I, I, I feel like a man who looks like that is a man who sets his own schedule. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Best to the family. Anything else you want to plug? At Jeff no, Passing on Twitter. Got it covered. All right. Uh, let's talk, uh, since we missed the all-star break, let's do like a free agency post-mortem or something like that. Done. All right. Sounds good, buddy. Thank you. All right, brother. Take it easy. See ya. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, holler now She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank Jeff Passon for being on the podcast today. Always love catching up with Jeff, having fun with Jeff, not talking about baseball with Jeff, getting back to baseball with Jeff. It's always a good time. I want to thank him, especially for taking out time. 
uh, the day of Game 1 of the World Series, uh, which is a busy day for him. Damon Hack, or excuse me, um, Damon's going to be on in a minute, so I had him on, on my mind. But Lee Jenkins uh, once talked to us uh, the day of Game 1 of an NBA Finals in Miami from his hotel room, and now Jeff joins the club talking to us from Boston in his hotel room before Game 1 of the World Series. All right, book club update. Some really cool things going on in the book club. First, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL by Jeff Perlman. I'm almost done with this. I think I'm going to reach out to Jeff at the end of the week and see when he wants to come in, maybe next week, maybe the week after, but soon, because I'm about done with the book, and it's it's Perlman... It's, it's Perlman at his best at most times. Uh, some of what frustrates me about Perlman at other times. Uh, but a fantastic read, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. I also got this week uh, a copy of this year's Best American Sports Writing Series, which Jeff is the guest editor. And I was looking through that. So I want to speak to Jeff about that as well, his experience with there, because that's a spot that we usually do anyway. Uh, so hopefully we'll find a time where Jeff's good for about an hour. We'll make sure we find a lot of time. And we'll break down the USFL and break down his experience uh, with Best American Sports Writing as well. Another treat that came in the mail while I was in the hospital is the new Jane Levy book, uh, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Uh, it's called The Big Fella. And she first mentioned... Uh, her uh, journey into this world four years ago on this program, she mentioned that she was writing this book. Uh, and for four years on and off, she'd give us little updates when she came in just to say hello and to talk. And I cannot wait to finish Jeff's book so I can read Jane's book, uh, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. It's everywhere right now. She was on Francesa. Uh, she's got a Facebook video that pops up if you're, I don't know being tracked by the right Russians, or however that works. Uh, and I have two copies of it to give away, too. They sent me three copies. I'm keeping one. I have two to send to you. If you're interested in a copy of The Big Fella, uh, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. But I can't wait to read it. I know she kind of focuses on his childhood a little bit more, maybe, than other uh, Ruth books. I heard someone say, in an online chat I'm in, someone said, didn't the John Goodman movie uh, cover cover it and it's like no <laughs> no it didn't jane levy is one of the great baseball biographers in the history of our times her sandy koufax and mickey mantle books are two of the best baseball biographies of all time uh, and if she has one about babe ruth if she had one about walt weiss uh, i would be dying to read it so i gotta finish uh football for a buck so i can get to the big fella if you're interested in a copy, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And of course, The Last Days of Letterman. I finished this one in the hospital uh, by Scott Ryan. I got to reach out to Scott and find out when the perfect time is for him to come in and talk about this one. Maybe he's ready now. Uh, maybe he wants to wait a little bit longer. Uh, you can find him at Scott Luck Story on Twitter. Uh, ScottRyanProductions.com is also his website. And it's a really cool book, The Last Days of Letterman, The Final Six Weeks by Scott Ryan. So a ton going on there. There's the Letterman book, 
Football for a Buck, The Crazier Rise and Crazier New Eyes of the USFL by Jeff Perlman. And then Jeff Perlman's also the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writing uh, anthology that just came out. It's a pinkish-looking book, uh, the color of it. So if you want to grab that one, that's available. Uh, and 10 bucks or less, you can get that. Uh, we'll talk to Jeff about that. And then, of course, the big fella is here. Babe Ruth and the World He Created by Jane Levy, a book she's been talking about for over four years on this program. All right, so with all that said, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Damon Hack about growing up a Dodger fan and uh, what he expects from the 2018 Dodgers in the World Series against the Red Sox. All right, our next guest is Sportscasters Royalty and one of the nicest men in sports media. He covers golf for Golf Channel, but today we're going to talk to him about the Los Angeles Dodgers, where he grew up a fan as a child growing up in Los Angeles and also as a student at UCLA, and where today he's still a fan, although living in Florida. Uh, one of our all-time favorites of Warren Sportscasters, welcome to Damon Hack. What's up, Damon? How you doing, buddy? I'm great, pal. How are you doing, Steve? Really good. Really good. Really excited about this one thing. You know, I always tell you this. I love talking to Damon in the fall. Our very first time, I always tell you this story, our very first time you were on, it was a, it was a Monday Night Football Gamer you wrote for SI. I know the Jets played. I was thinking about this earlier. I'm like, who the hell was this game? I think it was the Jets and the Broncos, but I, I, I know the Jets for whatever reason. I remember that, but... Yeah, we we don't we, we usually talk around golf majors, and uh, we're going to do something different today. And uh, for those who don't know, Damon's a lifelong Dodgers fan, so we're going to shoot the shit about the Dodgers for a bit. But uh, yeah, I'm just fired up to talk to you in the fall. It's like the old days of the football gamers for SI. Yeah, we got Chris Fall weather. Uh, Dodgers Red Sox going to be in the upper 40s for game one. Clayton Kershaw and Chris Sale on the mound. I mean, this is... This is great stuff. For me, I, I was a Dodger fan growing up in L.A. Been 30 years since Gibby in 1988. So uh, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm desperate for, for another uh, ring for the Dodgers. All right. So, all right, let's start there. So, obviously, so you, you, you're one of those people who's actually from L.A. And uh, yeah. so you grew up right in L.A., and that's how you become a fan. So no, no crazy story there or anything like that. But let's start with 88 because it's just so fun. I re- I remember the Gibson home run like it was yesterday, and I was only just turned eight years old. Like, but I still remember that that A's team was almost a primer for me to baseball. You know, learn like the stars of that team and watching them play like was an introduction to baseball to me in a lot of ways. The first World Series I remember was the one the Royals won, which I think was 85. So I'd already been watching and following it for a couple years, but that that was the first team I really knew about, really knew about, like knew their, their players and everything. And I knew nothing about that Dodgers team, uh, really, when, that, when the World Series started. And I can just still, you know, and part of it's probably because I've seen it, you know, 10,000 times since, but... Take me through game one of 88. Just what kind of fan are you at the time? Where are you? 
what's going on in your life and what do you remember about one of the most iconic moments in the history of sports, really? Oh, happy to relive that great memory. I was 16 years old, uh, living in Los Angeles, high school student. Uh, you know, had grown up watching the Dodgers and the Raiders and the Lakers and UCLA Bruins. I mean, I was a Los Angeles sports fan, you know, and as a teenager, you're living and dying with your teams. So the Dodgers had kind of had an underdog season, uh, scrappy players, you know, kind of a broken down older Kirk Gibson who, who had an MVP season. Uh, his better years obviously were with the Tigers, but he, you know, we got him and, and he kind of had this attitude, this edge. It really rubbed off on the rest of his teammates, Steve Sachs, Franklin Stubbs, you had Oral Hersheiser, who had an incredible year, uh, breaking Don uh, Drysdale's scoreless inning streak, uh, which was a big storyline for that season. But uh, the A's were the power team. They were the glamour team. You had Conseco and McGuire yep. and Dave Henderson. You had Dennis Eckersley in the pen, you know, closing out games, you know, like he was just, you know, brushing his teeth in the morning. I mean, it was just a, a fantastic a blend of power. He had Tony LaRusso's, you know, mental acumen as the A's manager and, and the Dodgers in game one, you know, they were down and, and Gibby was hurt and I'll never forget Tommy Lasorda trying to figure out how to use him. He was going to play. He wasn't going to play. Um, if you'd ever watched the movie, the natural, there are all these parallels to Gibson hobbling out to, to face Eckersley and, you know, he had everything but uh, Robert Redford's bloody jersey, you know, as he as he stepped to the plate and he's fouling off all these pitches and he hits a home run and, and you've got these two great calls. You know, you had Vin Scully on the radio, you know, saying in the year of the improbable, the impossible has happened. And, and, it, and it really was. And it set the tone for um, – for the Dodgers to go on and win that series. And you had, you had Jack Buck doing, uh, doing the television and it just was, uh, you know, I can't believe what I just saw. It was his call. And, and those were two of, of still the greatest calls in sports and that you had these two iconic broadcasters, you know, one on radio, one on TV and this kind of miracle home run off of the unhittable closer and Eckersley and the aging, uh, you know, Kirk Gibson coming out of uh, the dugout to, to pinch it and, and hit the game-winning home run was just—I was jumping up and down in, in our living room as a kid, and uh, and can remember vividly just uh, you know jumping around with my dad. It was a, a neat moment that I'll never forget. Oh, that's awesome! It's a dad moment. It's a Damon and Dad moment. I yeah. love it. You had had a, a little bit of run of success at the time, right? I mean, so you were old enough probably to enjoy a Raiders Super Bowl, right? Marcus Allen Super Bowl. And obviously, oh, yeah. and obviously, the Lakers are kicking ass at this time. The whole oh yeah, yeah. So you're in a run. I mean, you're not. I had a run. Right. I had a run. I had I had the Dodgers in '81 when I was nine. I had the Dodgers. Oh, in Fernando when I was team. Sixteen. I had the five Lakers titles in the '80s with Magic and Kareem. <laughs> and, uh, Worthy later joined. I had the Raiders uh, with Plunkett and, and Marcus Allen and. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I was not uh, starved of, of championships in Los Angeles as a kid. And do you, do you you remember watching a lot of those games and a lot of those moments with your dad then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my dad and I, we went to Dodger games together. 
uh, Cox Sports. My dad was, I kind of followed him in his fandom for the most part. He was more Rams fan, um, was Raiders. Uh, he loved the Lakers, though, so I, I was able to follow him. He had, uh, you know, the Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, uh, Will Chamberlain, Lakers. Right. Uh, and they kind of, you know, went right in from the great teams of the 60s and 70s, and I got them in the 80s. And then, of course, that, you know, Shaq and Kobe uh, doing great things uh, in the early 2000s. So uh, I kind of just followed my dad, uh, you know, in that L.A. sports fandom. And it was uh, it was a great time. And, you know, I mentioned the broadcasters. You know, you also had Chick Hearn doing Lakers games. Right. You know, and he had uh, <laughs> great terminologies and great passion and talking about the triple-double and, the, you know, the lights are out, the, the refrigerator door is closed, the eggs are cooling, the, the butter's getting hard, and the jello's jiggling. And that meant that the Lakers had uh, salted away another victory. So as a journalist, uh, you know, as a writer who later got into television, uh, and a sports fan, I had this incredible, you know, beautiful merging of great athletes like Magic and Steve Garvey, you know, and Ron Say and, and Kareem and these great broadcasters like Vince Scully and Chick Hearn and Bob Miller during Kings games for the NHL and hockey. It was an awesome, awesome time. What do you remember most about watching the Dodgers through Vince Scully's eyes? Like, as someone who grew up when you did... And certainly, listening to baseball and radio was was more popular then, and probably more something you did more often than you might do now. What can you tell me about growing up with Vince Scully? I know we're maybe a year late on this, so it was such a hot topic last year, but we didn't talk about it. So, what's the difference? And Vince Scully's timeless. Tell me a little bit more about just now in Buffalo. I grew up spoiled with broadcasters too. We had a guy named Ted Darling, uh, who did television for the Sabers until he. Unfortunately, got Alzheimer's. The press box here in Buffalo is called uh, Ted Darling's press box now. And then, of course, we have Rick Jenneret, who still calls Sabres games. He's a guy who you, you've heard his calls. You know, I, I don't know if you know him by name, but you've heard his calls. He's that kind of guy. And then the Bills had Van Miller for a long time. Not a uh, big big Bills fan, but I can appreciate Van Miller. So we've had some some good ones here as well. But what was it like growing up? Tell me a little bit about growing up. And, and, and learning about baseball and watching the Dodgers and, and seeing them through Vince Scully's, Vince Scully, Vince Scully's yeah. eyes. Yeah. It's a great question because the great thing about growing up in L.A. and listening to Vince Scully was I don't even remember my memories of watching Dodger baseball games on television uh, outside the, the World Series games and the playoff games and postseason. It was being at home and listening to the radio. You know, my dad would have the Dodgers games on in the house so you you know you had like two or three rooms with radios and you could listen to the seven thirty game you know coming home from school or the twelve thirty one o'clock start on the weekends and it's just having Ben Scully's voice you know his soundtrack in your ear as a kid and even more going to Dodgers games at Chavez Ravine thousands of fans would bring radios including my dad so you're watching a baseball game at Dodger Stadium and you can actually hear Ben Scully because everybody's got <laughs> Vin Scully's voice going on the broadcast. So it just was such a, a different time. You know, now everybody's watching games on, on social media and Twitter and, and, you know, obviously on television. But it just was a simple way to, to fall in love with the game and you really have the appreciation for, for what kind of talent Vin Scully was and being able to paint pictures 
Um, he just described games, balls and strikes and storylines and backgrounds so vividly well that it was a, a wonderful way to watch uh, your favorite team and, and listen to your favorite team and, and learn about your favorite team. One nice thing about the technology the last 10 years or so here is, you know, you get to stream on a market radio like I wouldn't have been able to do, obviously, in the 80s. And I listened to a lot of Vince Scully the last five years or so while I could. And one thing I just loved about him is just listening to him tell stories. He's just, a, you know, you're listening to a baseball game, but it's also just kind of like you're hanging out with the dude and listening to him talk about whatever he felt like that night. You know, like there was some kind of like, there's like a, romant, a romantic kind of like intimacy to it somehow. Like he made it, he was great at making it feel like a one-on-one broadcast every night. That's a great word to use, romance, because it, it, it was. And, and he did have the remarkable ability to slow the game down and, and really speak to the cadence of the game and the pace of the game. And I think sometimes in broadcast and whether it's play-by-play or, or talk shows, people want to talk, talk, talk so much. You know, Vince Gully would have five, eight, ten-second pauses you know, in his stories. And he would say, you know, it's one and two to Steve Garvey. And, you know, Steve, of course, you know, all-star now four years in a row. And he kind of tell you about, oh, he's, you know, hit 305. And about that time he was signing all those autographs a couple of weeks ago and took some pictures with the fans and they were telling great stories. And that's a foul ball. It's still one and two. And he just had this way to just kind of seamlessly go from the action to storytelling to anecdote, and he did it in an unhurried, beautiful way, um, which is very unique in a time when, you know, hey, let's be honest, a lot of broadcasters think that the story is about them. And I, I think Vince Scully was one that said, hey, the story's the game. I'll help kind of paint some pictures. And he just painted the most beautiful pictures I think any, any of us have ever heard in, in baseball broadcasting. Do you think it means more to the fans of the team uh, especially, do you think the thought of, of getting getting one this year, or as you know, when you think about him and Lasorda and their ages and, and and where they are in their lives, do you think fans still think about, you know, hey, this this one could be five percent more special or ten percent? It's hard. I know it's hard. I'm, tr- I'm trying to find a way to quantify this, but do you think it just means more as a fan the thought of maybe getting at least one more World Series while he's still alive to enjoy it? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point, and I, I, it's definitely crossed my mind. And, you know, th- those men in, in Lasorda and, and in Vince Scully, they are such a huge part of the history of the organization. You know, you can't write the history of the Dodgers without writing about Tommy Lasorda and Vince Scully, who, who have been a part of it for, for half a century, from, for, for even longer. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, ties that go back to Brooklyn and early Los Angeles. Uh, men who have traveled a million miles with, with the Dodgers and have a million stories and, and were part of great championship runs as, as players and as, as a, obviously a manager in Tommy's case and as, uh, as maybe the greatest broadcaster we've ever known in Vin. So it's a new era. It's a new day. It's about these players. And it's about Dave Roberts and, and it's about Kershaw. But, but for a lot of Dodger fans, and I hope for some of the, the players on the team too, there's going to be a little added motivation 
uh, knowing that uh, these great men are getting up there and won't have any more, many, many more uh, opportunities to watch uh, a Dodger parade and, and, and another ring, uh, uh, which could happen uh, in, in, in short time. One more thing I want to ask you about before we get into this this year's team is just Dodger Stadium. I went in 2014. I got to go to a game. Uh, it's got the it's got the quirks about it, like you know everyone gets there late and leaves early, and if you only have to go once to understand why. By the way, <laughs> um, it, like why you sit in that traffic one time, and like I'm like okay, like I get it. It's a Wednesday night in July. There's no way I'm staying until the ninth inning. You know, for a game, so I get it. Uh, it. But it is it is a really it's a, it's it doesn't take you long when you're there either to also just kind of appreciate the uh, appreciate the ambiance that it brings and the kind of uh, it's got a classic Fenway and Wrigley feel, but it's not as old. You know, it's a little bit it's a little bit more modern than that, and but it still has that kind of charm. You know, you got to get a Dodger dog. It's you know the hot dog has a name. If you're at a ballpark and the, the the hot dog has a special name, that's a plus, I think. And <laughs> it just looks pretty. And if you're there, like you know Los Angeles, right? The weather. Like I was there in August, but it was a like a cool August night. It was like maybe seventy five degrees in in the ballpark. You know, by the fifth or sixth inning, it's seventy. It's just like a perfect, beautiful night, and it's like. I, it's a top five place for me to to watch a game. What was it like growing up, going to games at Dodger Stadium? What's your relationship with the stadium? Um, is the traffic just too much for you? Does it drive you away? Or I mean, what just what is it like? What's what's what as a fan of the team? What, what's your what's your relationship with Dodger Stadium? Yeah, it's it's one of love. I, I went with all my family members from parents. So my grandma, I've been on the field. I've had my picture taken with Tom Lasorda when I was a kid, uh, going to Hollywood Stars Night when actors and athletes were, you know, you know, playing in a game before the, uh, the, the Dodgers would take the field and kind of the intersection between guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in a Dodger uniform and, you know, hanging out with the likes of Steve Garvey and Davey Lopes and Bill Russell and Ron Say and, yeah, traffic was was bad, and it's bad getting out of a lot of stadiums. I, I've been to enough stadiums now, and in sports, I've seen plenty of late arriving crowds and and uh, early leaving crowds. So I always kind of felt that the Dodgers got a bad rap, and that I've seen a lot, a lot of venues clear early when the uh, result is uh, is well in hand, and that that goes throughout the country. As far as stadiums to go watch to play a, a game, I don't think there are many more beautiful places on the planet to watch a sporting event up there. Uh, Chavez Ravine outside of Pasadena and Burbank. It's just a gorgeous place to watch the sun go down and to watch a, a, a late afternoon game turn in the early evening is, is a magical place to be. And, and you said to have a Dodger dog. I used to always used to have two or three. <laughs> oh, I had two or three. The yeah. because, oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're just, they're just, uh, it's the perfect, perfect hot dog. And, and uh, the grass is green and beautiful and lush, and the stadium is well kept for 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 being you know some fifty years old. It's uh, it's one of those remarkable places that uh, it just it just it's it's as good as it gets. I, I've never heard someone go to Dodger Stadium and say that they were 
underwhelmed by uh, the ambiance and, and just the character of the place. It could be baseball. It could be personal. It could be a mix of both. But do you have like a number one all-time in Dodger Stadium moment? You know, it's funny. Um, my all-time moment there actually happened um, sitting there with my dad, and it was a home run not hit by a Dodger. It was a home run hit by Dave Parker, who uh, started with the Pirates and ended up uh, at one point his career was playing for the Cincinnati Reds uh, before going to the Oakland A's. I was going to say, he was on the um, 88 Oakland team, I think, wasn't he? Or, or, yeah, he was yeah. exactly, the, the Cobra. So he, he was a well-traveled player, but he, he had a great arm in the outfield. But my dad and I will never forget, we're sitting in the outfield. In fact, I was in college at UCLA at the time, so I had taken the afternoon off and we went to watch a, a Dodger Reds game and, and, you know, Dave Parker hits this home run over the center field wall that took about half a second to leave his bat to clear the wall. And my dad and I just turned to each other like it was a frozen rope. He was such a devastatingly good hitter. And it's just the trajectory of the, of the ball, how quickly it left the stadium. It wasn't even a Dodger. But as a as feat of of hitting and brilliance, it was just one of those moments that was like, if you like baseball and you like seeing these guys do amazing things, we'll never forget the sound of the bat and, and how quickly that ball left the stadium. Wow. I can't even remember who he hit it off of, but I just remember uh, the ball leaving a, a, a absolute vapor trail uh, over Dodger Stadium. So that, uh, that's something that I still think about. It was a blue sky day. And uh, it was a, a really, really uh, remarkable home run by Dave Parker. Have you been there with your sons yet? I have not. My boys are seven now. They love all sports. I took them to the first NFL game, um, week two, Eagles against the Bucks. We have some fan, uh, some friends here in in, uh, in Florida who are big time Eagles fans. Mm. Uh, one of my boys is an Eagles fan. I have an Eagles fan. I have a Bills fan, believe oh. it or not. <laughs> poor kid. Uh, and I have, uh, and I have exactly, and I have a Raider fan, another poor kid who um, who's followed his dad, uh, me, into a, a Raider fandom. But we we drove uh, from Orlando to Tampa, and it was like the hottest day uh, on record. It was Ugh. so hot, so we went to a football game together. We've done um, hockey games. Orlando has a minor league hockey team. Uh, so we've done that. Uh, Love hearing and that. We have not done a Dodger game uh, yet. Uh, when we get out to L.A., and we've been to L.A., but we haven't been out there for baseball season, and maybe we'll get to to experience that because my boys love all sports. They like football. Right. They like basketball. They like, they like golf, yeah. soccer, baseball, you name it. Anything that has competition, they like. All right, let's talk about let's, – let's go through this quick. Let's talk about the uh, 2018 Dodgers. What's special about this team? Uh whether they win or lose, you when you look back, what will it be about this team you love? I, I love this team because I think it has a terrific mix of grit and of, of talent. And, and it's not just uh, – it's not a one-trick pony. And, and, and this team – listen, listen, it's the third highest payroll in the majors. I, I realize that. And we've got some some big-time expensive players. And we got Manny Machado and – uh, I say we, I mean, I, I'm really sounding like a fan. Like I had anything to do with that, but I am used to seeing teams like the Red Sox and Yankees and Dodgers. You, you get who you want because you can afford it. Um, 
but then you got the gritty players like Justin Turner and Bellinger and and some of these players that uh, aren't necessarily the the big ticket, you know, big name players. And and in that way, it reminds me a little bit of '88 that it has that special, you know, gleam to it. You know, obviously Machado is a bit controversial. Uh, he has a, an interesting history with with Chris Sale and, and, and Dustin Pedroia when he was with the Orioles. That's going to be an interesting dynamic of this series. Um, he's not well-liked in Boston, and it's going to be fascinating to see the reception he gets uh, at Fenway. Uh, it's not going to be any surprise. I mean, he will be booed loudly. But uh, you know, Puig bothers some people with his antics. I understand that. If, if, if Puig was on another team, I wouldn't like him. Uh, because he's a Dodger, I, I just think he's uh, one of the great characters <laughs> of the game in, instead of a, a pain in the tuchus, as a lot of people look at it. But I, I look at this team, and it, it revolves around Clayton Kershaw, and, mm. and he's been criticized for his postseason starts. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Dodgers have ridden him so much, asking him to pitch on short rest, asking him to pitch two or three times in a series, and you know, you're the horse during the season and you're the horse during the postseason, and that's a lot. But I think he stepped up uh, a lot during these uh, playoffs, and I think he'll have a, a good game one. I hope he can handle the cold conditions and cold weather and loud Fenway crowd. But I think this team has uh, proven it special just by getting back to the series after the, the, the tantalizingly close but disappointment of a year ago losing to the Astros. So I think it says a lot about the character of the team. Uh, and of the manager uh, in Dave Roberts, who went to UCLA. By the way, you'll love this, Steve. I actually was doing KLA college radio games when Dave Roberts was a UCLA Bruin. Wow. Uh, playing f- at Jackie Robinson Stadium. So we were at school the same time. Uh, I interviewed him when we were in college. I haven't spoken to him since, but it's been neat to follow the trajectory of his career as a Red Sox hero right. himself in 04. base, yeah. Uh, so now, yeah, the stolen base, uh, down 3 nothing, And, and uh, without that, you know, who knows what conversation we're having and what kind of career he would have had or whether the curse would have ever ended right. for the Sox. But a lot of great storylines, and it's going to be neat to, to see him back at Fenway. And I just think this Dodger team, there's something special to be able to get back uh, – to win the pennant back-to-back after coming so close to winning it all last year. And just, I know a lot has been made of it, but, you know, they had that awful record in May, like 13 games, you know, behind 500. And, you know, September, they're not even in first place. They got to play a game 163. You know, I think they drew, they got a nice draw with a Braves team that I think is maybe even two years ahead. You know, so I think they got a little bit of a break there. But, um. You know, I'm a pitcher. I-, I love pitching. Like, I watch baseball almost for pitching sometimes. I love to watch pitchers. And, I mean, Clayton Kershaw is as fascinating as anyone. I don't know if you read Molly Knight's – Molly Knight wrote a terrific book. The Best Team Money Can Buy, I think, is the name of it, about the Dodgers a couple years ago. Right. And she really t- it- she really makes you fall in love with Clayton Kershaw. I mean, I think if if you read that book and you don't walk away just wanting to see him succeed, I think you're a little strange. And, you know, it's he's in a tough spot where – like last year, didn't he come out of the bullpen in Game Seven and pitch like four yeah. strong innings? You know, but you give up if you're a pitcher like Kershaw. Like you can do things like that. You can pitch, you know, seven seven scoreless, get a win. But still, then if you pitch a playoff game, 
the next time and it's three innings, five runs, and your team loses, you're a guy just you're you're a giant choker. And and you know, I, I think Greg Maddox dealt with that a lot, where there was so much volume to it that nobody thinks about his one run, you know, nine innings against Cleveland in '95. They'll think about you know a game he didn't get it done in '96 against the Yankees in the series or something like that. Um, and I'm being a little generic, not like at those aren't all specific like facts to the memory, just kind of being general about things that probably happened. Um, but, and I think it's unfair for Kershaw, you know, so I root for him every time, every time out and guys like, well, I'll tell you what, I, I I think you're right. I think the book, uh, which I haven't read, which I, I I want to read is, uh, is a great point to, 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 I got, I got to read it. And I I follow Molly on Twitter and she's terrific. And she, uh, retweeted another tweet that, that basically said Kershaw's postseason perceived woes aren't, aren't as bad as people think. He's the only pitcher to have like eight starts where he's gone eight innings and allowed a run. I mean, he, he's, he's been – he's had 21 starts and five relief appearances. He's got like a, a little over a four ERA, 4.26 as a, as a, if I recall what, I, what I've read. And he's – and, and and yet he he's the horse he's the bell cow he's you know if it was an NFL running back he's like carrying it thirty five times a game he just they ask a lot of him they should he's well compensated he's immensely talented but I think that uh, I think that his uh, perceived weaknesses in the postseason have been a little bit overblown I, I think we've seen what he can do I think he's gotten more comfortable he's gotten better in the postseason and, and I think it's you know, hey obviously the Dodgers are looking at him to go game one, go game four, and possibly go game seven if necessary. But uh, I tell you what, I'm happy he's on the Dodgers. I wouldn't want anyone else right now in this position. Uh, I think it's uh, it's going to be a special special week for him. And I think that uh, Dave Roberts will use him strategically uh, if he has to. I mean, this is the era of bullpenning, you know, where, 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 where you know, managers aren't afraid to bring in help if necessary. It's not the era of, Tom Seaver and and uh, Bob Gibson, you know, going nine innings, or Jack Morris going ten. Uh, but I tell you, Clayton, Clayton Kershaw has earned his reputation as one of the best in the game, and I think he'll he'll uh, you know I'm a little bit biased, but I think he'll double down on that and have a a terrific uh, series against the Sox. Yeah, I think David Price is maybe a little bit of an example of what we're talking about for the Red Sox too. Although he hasn't had he hasn't had nearly as much success as. Um, as Kershaw in the playoffs, but I do, I, it's just like, I do root for a guy like him, like, you know, um, but, uh, the Astros ruined it last year, right? We were so close to having Yankees and Dodgers. So I was, I'm happy this year that it's Red Sox and Dodgers. Cause as a neutral observer who just loves baseball, really don't even have a team, really someone who just loves baseball more than any other team. The thought of, these two franchises playing for the first time since Babe Ruth started his first World Series game in, what was it, 1916 or 18 or something like that. Like, these two historic, it's it's, it's almost perfect, right? I mean, one's in, in the East in Boston, they play in Fenway Park. One's in the West in Los Angeles, they play at Dodger Stadium, right? I mean, they, they, this is where the money in the league is. These two teams are, I think, one and three in payroll or something. There's stars on both sides. I mean, it's got everything you'd want. I'm sure uh, my friend Joe Buck and Fox 
Uh, when the Dodgers got that last out, they were doing backflips down down some street in Manhattan uh, at the thought of, of this being the World Series. As a fan, how do you break down your team uh, matching up against the team that's really been the best team in baseball all year? I think you, you sort of hinted at the comparison to this, them being like the, the, the 2018, the 88 A's. Are kind of, we're kind of like this, right? The they were the, they're the big sexy team this year with the Mookie Betts and the, you know the stars and and the wins. They won like 114. I mean the Yankees won 100 games, I think, and they lost the division by double digits. So where do you sit as a fan? Does it feel like a free roll? Does it feel more important because they were there last year? How do you kind of break down the matchup with the Red Sox? Yeah, I think it's interesting. The the, the managers are. Our two recent players in, in Cora, who actually played for the Dodgers, you know, and the Red Sox, and and, and same with uh, with Dave Roberts. I, I have so much respect for the Red Sox organization. I lived in New York for twelve years, couldn't stand the Yankees, so my wife and I kind of adopted the Red Sox as kind of a, uh, you know, it would been my second second or third favorite team, and, and same with my wife, who's actually a Mets fan. Um, so it was neat to kind of watch the Red Sox battle and, and, and break that curse and, you know, watching Schilling and watching Ortiz and, and, and those guys do, uh, incredible things and Johnny Damon and et cetera. Um, I tell you what, this is, uh, this is tough. I mean, Mookie Betts, this, this team is, 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 is there for a reason. And, and, uh, I, I think the, 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 the fact that they were able to break that 86 year curse in 04, I feel like it's more of a free roll for, for the Red Sox. I, I think they probably can feel a little more comfortable. They beat the, you know, they, they, they beat the Yankees. They, they, that's, that's huge for them. That, that's almost as important as winning a world series. You know, this is, this has become title town, right? You know, this is a city now that's become accustomed to winning. If, if the Red Sox don't win, yes, they've got the highest payroll, but I just get the sense that they're not going to be as under as much pressure as the Dodgers. Well, their other uh, three got teams the are favorites. They, they've got more runs. Yeah, exactly. yeah, right. Like more, if they don't win, the, more the Bru- runs than anybody in baseball. Yeah, and if they don't win, like you said, so I sorry to jump in, but if they don't win, like you said, the Bruins, Celtics, and Patriots are all top three favorites to win the le- to win their league this year. Right, so it's not like remarkable. It, all three of them, all, honestly, all three are. So I did. Sorry, you just. I just want to jump in and make that point because you you were making it perfectly. But it's like, yeah, like, yeah. If they win, great. If not, and you mentioned the curse. They still they won two others since then, right? I mean, they won in two thousand thirteen, yeah, exactly. And they won another one in between oh four and thirteen. So I mean, like, those days are over, right? I mean, this is not. No one's feeling sorry for them anymore. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, watching that sixteen to one win over the Yankees in Game Three of the ALDS, the offense, the offense scares me. I mean, like every every starter in that game had a hit, if I remember. You know, it just uh, it was it, it was crazy. You know, Jackie Bradley. I mean, you know, Devers. You can go down their lineup. They, they've got absolute studs uh, on that team, and I and that that the offense scares me. The, the quirkiness of Fenway scares me. This is going to be different for the Dodgers. It's just a, it's a big ask. They have home field advantage, obviously, the first two, and then the game six and seven will be at Fenway. Uh, I, I hope that, uh, 
you know, no one's going to ever consider the Dodgers an underdog. They're not like the 22nd highest payroll like the Brewers were. But uh, I do hope that the Dodgers in some, in some way can relax and not press because uh, I, I see the Dodgers being more likely to, to put up a, you know, a game where they're not giving Kershaw the run support. And that happens too much, I feel like, and it's happened a lot throughout his career where he hasn't had the run support in his games where he's, where he's been on the hill. Uh, versus the other other Dodgers starters, so uh, I worry about the weather being cold. I worry about the Fenway Ghost and, and that whole bit. Um, I, I think the Red Sox probably should be slight favorites, but uh, my heart bleeds blue, and I'm hoping that the Dodgers can turn back the clock to '88 and, and have a, a magical run as they did when I was 16. I think the hope too is that the the Red Sox mismanage when they lose the DH. Right, like they're going to have to really make some decisions because they can't play all four outfielders. Are they going to move Mickey Batts and play second base? Feels like they got a lot right. more decisions to make in that. Where the Dodgers have a, you know, went through this last year, and I think are better fit are fit really well of all the National League teams. I think to play in the American League Park, so I, I do think that is a, definitely a plus for them. But I mean, how do they win when you look at it like? If we're, if we're talking 10 days from now and the Dodgers win the World Series, what do you think the three main things we are saying they found success with were? Kershaw is probably Kershaw, a given, right? Yeah, Kershaw. Kershaw's first, second, and third. I, I think he's going to be huge. And also just kind of the clutch gene. You know, I, I think Justin Turner, you know, he's just – he's so scrappy. He, yep. He's so tough. He, he It's funny, and I, and I kind of tease my San Francisco Giants fans, friends, that he reminds me of, uh, of a scrappy San Francisco giant. Like, I, I, he, he could be easily be in that, in that clubhouse and that dugout because, uh, you know, the, the Bruce Bocce teams that were, were, were doing so well for, for almost a decade in the, in the Giants dynasty of, of the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, they had a lot of guys that could just step up at any given moment. And then, of course, the bullpen has to do the job, but I think Jansen will. Um, but I, I would say, yeah, Kershaw, I would say the clutch gene, and I would say the, the bullpen has, has to do the job. And, uh, and you're going to have to have a few breaks, and you're going to have to have your manager push the right buttons. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, Dave Roberts has been criticized. Um, but I think that uh, I think he's grown uh, as a manager. He's in the last year of his contract. They have not uh, yet exercised his option. Uh, which is interesting yeah. considering he's back in the back in the series. I, I think they will, uh, regardless of the outcome, unless he just has an absolutely awful series. But uh, yeah, I think the Dodgers have to have uh, several things go right. But I just have a feeling that they will. I actually think it, it, it could be an absolutely epic series. That uh, I, I hope uh, I hope it goes seven games. Uh, just just for for baseball fans to enjoy, kind of the L.A. Boston. Magic bird, you know, old school type of uh, of uh, rivalry and energy that we saw in basketball. Maybe we'll be seeing something like that similarly uh, as we travel from uh, east coast to west and back to east uh, in the fall classic. I think Bellinger needs to stay hot, and I think that, like you mentioned, Puig and Machado, one of those two guys, I think, kind of needs to be the MVP of the yeah. series. You know, one of those two guys needs to be just getting a big hit every night or something. I don't know how many games. Puig's gonna play. You know, I don't know how the you know how many lefties right. Like if he's gonna play all side, but he play five and I think in the NLCS. But 
however many he plays, when he plays, I think either he or Machado, one of those guys needs to help Bellinger and stay hot, like you said. And and Turner is just so scary in a big spot for whatever reason, like you mentioned. Like when he comes up in a big spot, if I'm on the other team, I'm just kind of expecting him to get the hit. I don't know why. What it is about him. You know, he's got kinda of got that look to him. I don't know. But yeah, I think yeah. that I think we kinda of covered where to some and I think for the Red Sox, I think you just need to to impose your will, right? Just be the team you've been, you know, win your home games. That's I mean, that's really the key. You don't you know, you don't have to worry about ever winning one of those games in Dodger Stadium if you can win your home games, but so I think they just yeah. need to kind of impose their will and be be who they are. But it's gonna be interesting to see some of the young stars on the offensive side and, and, and who, you know, who is, who's the big story? Is it Betts? You know, is it one of the other young Red Sox stars? Is it Machado? You know, who's the guy? I think, I think that's, I think that's where I'm at with it, but best of luck, Damon, to the Dodgers. It was fun. We did a crash course. We talked about growing up a Dodger fan. We talked about 88. We talked about the stadium. We talked about this year's team. Uh, you can find Damon on Twitter uh, where he talks about golf, the Golf Channel. You can find him on that as well, Morning Drive. Uh, golf season's over. Tiger did get a win uh, since we talked last, uh, which I think was probably pretty huge from him. I still feel like he's going to get one more major. I know you feel like it might be a little bit more than that. I think you're more in the two category, if I recall. Let me ask you this last thing. We'll close on this. Just a real quick golf question. Uh there's one big thing left on the calendar, right? Tiger and, and Phil Mickelson are doing this kind of made-for-TV thing. They're playing for $9 million of their own bucks, allegedly, and they went the pay-per-view route, which I, th- I think was a mistake. What do you think of this event? Is it going to be a big deal? Is it going to be a flop? What, what do you kind of think about the Phil-Tiger thing coming up, and then I'll let you go? Yeah, I think Tiger's win absolutely added some juice to it. Then I heard that... Uh, they're not having the public there. They're going to have some sponsors and friends of Tiger and friends of Phil. And I just worry about the atmosphere being a little bit sterile instead of having like, you know, get some members of the military or some school buses with some kids that you're trying to grow the game. You know, Vegas has uh, a pretty, you know, impoverished population, you know, the outside the casinos. It's actually a pretty working class town. And and I I feel like there's like an opportunity being missed here that, that Tiger and Phil, you know, despite all the money they're playing for, I just think there should be some sort of charitable aspect to it. That's kind of my philanthropic view of the event because they're so popular Tiger and Phil that they could do something that leaves a more lasting impression beyond the money they're going to make. I I think the fact that it's Tiger, you're going to have some eyeballs though. Uh, The Ryder cup, performance for both tiger and phil was absolutely anemic that that probably hurts the uh the draw and, and the fact that you know, you're gonna have to pay 25 30 bucks and you know for people um with jobs and kids that that's you know they're they're, they're you know putting their their dollars together and, and they're working off of budgets so you know some people say oh it doesn't sound like a lot of money but for that's not that's not the, the case for for most people so um i feel like golf had an opportunity here to kind of get out of the, the elitist bubble that it sometimes falls in. And I, and I feel like Tiger and Phil and the handlers of this event may be missing an opportunity. There's still time to rectify it before Thanksgiving weekend, but I'd like to see some sort of charitable aspect and some sort of public uh, aspect to this event to make it uh, a bigger event. And I think it has the potential 
to be a, a flop considering uh, the time of year, uh, the fact that most people are worrying about football and holidays. Um, but we'll see. You know, Tiger uh, got his groove back uh, with win number 80, and that might be just enough to uh, help uh, get those pay-per-view dollars uh, uh, in, into, the, uh, into the mix. Yeah, it's just such a turnoff. The pay-per-view thing's such a turnoff to me. And you're asking people to really, to really find a new habit to buy to buy a golf event. And I mean, it's, it literally would be unprecedented. God, is there a person on earth who's yeah bothered? during the holiday season? Right. People want to buy each other gifts. Yeah, as well. <laughs> it's strange. But listen, I kept you long enough. Good luck to the Dodgers. Uh, it would, I'm sure, be a lot of fun for you. I know that it's, it's been since '88. So you're due for uh, due for some celebration in baseball, especially after the heartbreak last year. And it was good of you to do this with me. I hope you had a little fun, just kind of reminiscing about uh, about the team and watching with your dad and all that. I really enjoyed it. So thanks for the time and thanks for the stories. And I'm sure we will uh, talk soon. Before we know it, it'll be time for the Masters, and I'll have to ring you up, and we'll have to get back get get really back into the debate about whether or not Tiger can cut into Jack at all uh, this year. So thanks, Damon. Thanks so much, man. Great going, uh, traveling memory lane with you, man. And go Dodgers. Talk to you soon. I want to thank Damon Hack and Jeff Passon for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts by searching the Sportscasters. You can also find us on Stitcher, and you can find us on SoundCloud.com slash Sports-Casters. You can also find us on Twitter at Sports underscore Casters, and email me if you would like a copy of The Big Fella by Jane Levy at the Sportscasters at gmail.com my other project the adams division podcast i'm in research mode watching episodes of the survivor series as my friend peter winston and i will be breaking down survivor series 87 to 98 we'll rank them we'll talk about them we'll do it like we've done for wrestlemania's 1 to 14 and SummerSlam 88 to 98 and then we also did a Greatest Wrestler Project podcast. It's the Adams Division podcast with Peter Winson, who's from my rest, favorite wrestling podcast, which is Greetings from Allentown. You can find him. He's at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. And if you search Greetings from Allentown on Apple Podcasts, you can find his show, which is one of the best wrestling podcasts in the world, if not the best. I give it my highest recommendation, and I can't wait to work with Peter again soon. So with all that said, I'm going to try to do this as best I can and give everyone a rundown of what happened to me. So I'm going to be honest right away and say, if you listen to this show of any significance, you know, I've battled Crohn's disease and bowel related issues since 2003. And it was last at its worst in 2013. uh, And the events of that year have been well, well documented Thanks to Richard Deitch and everyone on the internet. All summer I've been struggling uh, with 
with Crohn's disease and with stomach pain and kind of knowing in the back of my mind that something wasn't right, uh, that I wasn't doing well, I wasn't eating a lot, I was losing weight. I was in a lot of ways feeling kind of like I was holding on, holding on to what I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, I felt like I needed to be here every day to take care of my daughter, which I do every day. And I was doing the best I could with pain medication that's prescribed and rest. And sometimes I even felt like maybe I had mono because I couldn't keep my eyes open. And it ruined my summer in a lot of ways. And September was not a good month. And I felt like I was going down. And at one point I did go to the emergency room and I kind of got blown off there. I just don't think... You know, the lady who's seen it didn't get it. I couldn't express it to her. My doctor, after the fact, was really surprised. She sent me home based on all the swelling and the CAT scan they did. But that can happen at the emergency room sometimes. This time, uh, I woke up one day a couple weeks ago and I said to Tammy, are you busy at work because I think you should take off. I don't think I can take care of Paula today. And I thought maybe I could catch up on a day of rest and then get back at it. And as the day went on, it became more clear that I was sick and that I needed to go to the emergency room. So I did go to the emergency room. And I got a doctor and she was pretty receptive and she she heard me out and she she ordered a CAT scan, which I wasn't crazy about uh, because I'm still kind of thinking it's just a flare in my head. But I, I'm thinking that, but I'm also thinking, but I need this CAT scan because it's probably something else. And there's two things that scare me. There's two things that are in my mind as, as just frightening. And I mean, one is colon cancer. You know, I know it's one, it's it's not one with a high success rate of curing and everything that's gone wrong with my colon. I I'm afraid of that. But everyone's afraid of colon cancer, right? And I'm also afraid of, of, of a bowel blockage because um, I've already had two and both times I needed big surgeries. So I'm going to be honest. I don't like to be crowded at the hospital, especially in the emergency room. I just had Tammy drop me off, take Paula home. I could handle it by myself. Um, so I was alone, which maybe didn't in the end turn out to be the best idea this time. Uh, just because what happened was we agreed on a CAT scan. I had the CAT scan. Uh, she gave me a little bit of pain medication, although not enough. So I was still kind of in pain. And all of a sudden what happens is she walks in, the doctor that's seeing me, uh, the main doctor of the entire emergency room, and a room full of students as well. And she says to me, you have a bowel blockage. Um. So I took a deep breath and I said, okay. And she said, what we think we're going to do is we're going to put in something called an NG tube into your nose and we're going to try to drain it. And if that works, we can maybe avoid surgery. And if not, you know, maybe you'll have surgery. And she's kind of explaining it to me and I'm kind of hearing her, but not. And the next thing I know, there's two nurses putting this NG tube into my nose, which is one of the worst experiences. First of all, 
it feels like they break your nose to get the tube kind of around and then it goes all the way down into your stomach and believe it or not the second they put it in I was starting to get some relief uh, because immediately just stuff started just oozing out of my bowel uh, draining out of it and they drained a lot over the three or so days they had the tube in they drained a lot of junk out of my bowel and after they do that for a couple of days oh so i should back up so they put the ng tube in she says she's gonna check me in and i'm like all right i have to let my wife know i've told my mom no so i call tammy and I'm i'm gonna be honest i was i was sobbing you know, I have a, I just kept saying I have a bowel blockage, you know, I have a bowel blockage. I was just thinking the worst, you know, thinking about the surgery already and the recovery and can I do this again and how hard is this going to be and what are we going to do with our daughter and just you, just everything that flashes through your eyes for me when I hear bowel blockage because of what it's meant to me so far. Now, I mean, in the long term, you'll find out in this story, this wasn't quite the blockage like I've had in the past, so... We did drain it with the NG tube for now, anyway. So you have that in for. So I I called Tammy. I told her that was a bad conversation, and then I couldn't get a hold of my mom, which was really frustrating. Which is weird because usually I like distance there because she's a mom, and but I wanted her at that moment, and I couldn't get her, and it was frustrating. And. You know, so next thing you know, you're on the floor, and you're kind of checked in. And I'm just kind of that whole first night, like, how am I going to get used to this thing in my nose? I did get a great pain medication order while I was there. I was getting Dilaudid, two milligrams of Dilaudid every three hours, which is kind of the ideal dose for someone who's been on it as often as I have. And um, so I, I, I thank them for that. I actually... Uh, Millard Fillmore Suburban Hospital was fantastic through the whole thing, but all the nurses and everyone I worked with was great. But um, so you basically just, I spent the first three days there just letting this thing drain. And I also did have a flare as well. So there's kind of dealing with the pain from the flare. I was getting some relief down the middle from the blockage draining and all the stuff they're taking out. And eventually then they cap off the tube and they see how you do after four hours and after eight hours and they decided to take the tube out. And then I spent the weekend there kind of dealing with the flare, seeing if I could hold food, and then on a Monday I went home. And I got through it. Part of me thinks it's a Band-Aid. I don't know if we really cured this blockage. Or if we drained a blockage that's going to fill back up. I don't know that. I'm going to see my doctor on November 1st. We'll talk more about it, I'm sure. It's been a kind of up and down road at home so far. I'm very hungry. Sometimes I sleep well. Sometimes I don't. Um, So we'll see if it works. I'm not getting that NG tube again, though. If this fills back up. We're going to have to operate on it in my mind. I mean, I'm not just going to every few months go in for an NG tube for three days. And the hardest thing this time that made this different was my daughter is old enough to understand that dad's not home, but not old enough to understand why not. And she really struggled. And 
that's just something you don't anticipate. You know, because I've seen, I've seen how this affects me and how it affects people I care about and it hurts, but they're adults. You know, like I see, I've seen the pain in my mom's eyes or my brothers or my wife, but those are adults and they're just scared for me, but they understand and they just love me. They want me to be okay. You can deal with that. But for Paula, you know, this is really her first go around with dad's reality. And Paula's used to having me here every day, every day. And she didn't. And it got difficult for her. to. And when I, when I got home that Monday and she seen me. And she hugged me. It was, it was different than anything I, I'd ever been through. Because then she wouldn't leave me. She had some separation anxiety. You know, she would leave the house. And she'd be scared that I wasn't going to be there again. And I just keep telling her that I am going to be there. But I know in the back of my head that there's a chance I won't be someday. You know, that this could come back, that I could need surgery. And it's like, I just wish she was just a little bit older, you know, so I could just explain it a little bit more or maybe a little bit better or I don't even know. But, you know, that was a new thing this time around because I, I mean, if you listen to this show, you know I can handle Crohn's disease and even as scared as I am of a blockage and the surgery, I can handle another one, two more, three more. I don't know, as many as I need because I know more than ever I want to be here as long as I can now. You know, or maybe, as long, I don't know if I've ever admitted this out loud, sometimes I didn't feel like I cared that much, that just whatever was going to happen was going to happen, but... You know, things change. But it was hard this time around to to live this through through a two-year-old who doesn't understand enough. You know, who who doesn't know why I'm not there. And to see her reaction after, you know, is really difficult uh, for me. You know, because the last thing I want to do is to like ruin her life or something or part of her life or scar her you know like when she was born she was this white canvas and then as parents we kind of mark it up and you hope you can paint the prettiest picture on that canvas and she can become this well-adjusted beautiful adult and you can feel like you celebrate with your wife at the end of your life in those future days or whatever but, look, I got through it. I'll get through it again if I have to. I want to thank everyone who helped me. The usuals. My brothers, my mom, my wife. And I love you, Paula. <laughs>